Welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, where we look at life, faith, and theology from a different angle. Today is one of my good friends who's authored a book uh, called Passport to Heaven. We have with us today, Micah Wilder. Micah, it's good to see you, man. Good to see you too, Caleb. Long time. Yes. So the subtitle to this book is The True Story of a Zealous Mormon Missionary Who Discovers the Jesus He Never Knew. Now, Micah is a former Mormon and your family. That was kind of how you grew up. And so this, the book, which is, you, it's very well written. It took you several years to write and it comes through because you're an incredible writer. You did a fantastic job. I couldn't put it down. In fact, when I got the book in, I didn't know when we were going to set up the interview. So I read it in two days. I like, I just <laughs> went through it. And then I emailed your publicist. And I was like, Hey, I finished the book already. And they're like, uh, that was a little faster than we needed. But it's very well written. And so I, I appreciate the amount of time and energy you put in to communicate this story. Because a lot of people don't realize how difficult it has to be to leave something that you cherished and loved. But this happens to a lot of people. If you didn't grow up in the church and you meet Jesus, you're going to have this big internal struggle of leaving your old life and following Jesus. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I mean, you grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was raised in a very uh, devout Mormon home. Uh, I actually grew up in the Midwest, so I'm originally from Indiana, uh, which there's not a lot of Latter-day Saints there, which actually made our family even stronger, you know, because we felt like we were kind of a beacon of light and of hope, you know, to to our, our co-workers and our peers and my, my friends and everything. And um, my parents were actually converts to the church. So they had converted when they were college students, uh, graduate students at Ball State University. Uh, ironically, they both grew up in nominal Christian homes. So my father had a Southern Baptist background, my mother a Methodist background, and, uh, and, and two Mormon missionaries knocked on their door when they were about 24 years old and uh, introduced this, this idea that the true church of Jesus Christ had been restored to the earth. So they raised us in it. Uh, we were very faithful in going to church every week and reading our scriptures, uh, you know, and following the commandments and the moral codes of Mormonism. And so we were, I, I think, as as devout of a Mormon family as you could ever meet. Now, when you grow up in that environment, one of the things that every young man looks forward to is the time where they're going to go on their missionary journey. Was that true for you? Or this is something that you were really looking forward to? Oh, yeah. I, I had been waiting for my two-year mission trip for, for years, probably from the time I was about 14 years old. I was really thinking about it uh, and excited for the opportunity because it, it's a huge kind of um, cultural expectation, right? And, and it's a religious expectation, but it's also this kind of moment where over these two years, you're going to have this massive spiritual transformation. And so I remember uh, seeing people leave at 19 years old and come back at 21. And it's like they had undergone some, you know, miraculous uh, transformation over those two years. And they had gone from a child to an adult, you know, so I was kind of expecting that that same sort of experience was going to happen with me. And so I very, very fervently prepared for it. Um, probably more so than most young men, I think, 
Uh, I, I read the scriptures daily. I, I got to the point where I, I, I purged kind of all worldly influences from my life. I stopped listening to secular music uh, and, and just really tried to focus my life on spiritual preparation because I thought that the more that I did to spiritually prepare for this experience, then the more I was going to learn and the more I was going to be able to make converts to Mormonism. Now, this two-year trip, in fact, whenever I meet with uh, Mormon missionaries, and if you scroll through my podcast, you'll notice there's a lot of Mormonism through the podcast because we share one of the same passions. I have a, a huge heart for uh, those that are caught up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I've been trying to, I know they don't want to be called LDS or even Mormon anymore uh, is one of the, their new things. But I always try to commend them because that has to be really difficult to leave at 18 years old or so, 19 years old, and leave your family for two years. But it's it's kind of designed to really solidify their faith and belief in their prophet and their church. And it kind of had the opposite effect on you, right? You were supposed to become a more devout Mormon, but right. something happened on your trip. Now, maybe just kind of give us, what was the first thing where all of a sudden you started to maybe see that there might be a, a, an area of conflict in your relationship with God and your relationship with the church. Yeah. So, so like you said, like this, this two year mission trip, it's kind of like a rite of passage, right? So, so you go on this uh, expecting that your faithfulness and devotion to the church, right. And, uh, and all of its principles and all of its doctrines are going to be strengthened. And so I certainly uh, approached my mission with that mentality. There, there is never any part of me as a young man growing up as a teenager and even in the early parts of my mission that had ever questioned or doubted, right, the the core tenets of Mormonism. I just, I believed every aspect of it. And so I went on my mission, you know, believing that that testimony was only going to get fortified as a result. But um, it's amazing how, you know, God is so deliberate in our lives, right? He's so... Um, purposeful in in the things that he does to draw us to himself. And so, although I wasn't looking, you know, to leave the life that I had known and loved, God was looking to draw me to a truth that I didn't even know was out there. And so, he put me in in, in situations and, and put people in my life that ultimately, you know, he used to start opening my eyes. And so, I actually had two kind of main experiences early on in my mission. You'll read this in the book uh, where I encountered two different pastors who were almost like polar opposites of one another, uh, complete opposite uh, on even the religious spectrum. One was a very charismatic, uh, you know, black pastor. The other one was a very conservative Baptist pastor, but yet through each one of them and my encounters with, with each one, God, you know, planted seeds in my heart that ultimately, you know, he brought to fruition. So the, the second one is kind of the one that's emphasized more in my testimony. And that was when I met with this Baptist pastor and tried to convert him to Mormonism, uh, not knowing that God was going to use that experience to ultimately bring me to truth. Now, what was it in this meeting? Because as a Baptist pastor who meets with Mormons, um, and I'll even go online. And when our church in Tulsa, we would do Mormons of May, where we would, we would kind of teach the church the basic tenets of Mormonism, and then we would encourage them to go and request a free book of Mormon online so that the missionaries would come to their house and they could begin having conversations. But to be honest, very rarely are they fruitful. No matter how much love they're done with, uh, no matter how much evidence is brought in, what was it about what this pastor said that kind of grabbed your heart and mind? Yeah. I, I like that you pointed out that 
rarely are these experiences fruitful um, because that's actually, that's an important part of my testimony. Um, I think that we engage in these types of circumstances where we meet with non-believers or meet with Mormon missionaries and we kind of set this expectation in our minds, right? That, that I've got the truth, I've got the gospel, I'm going to proclaim it with eloquence and love and bam, right? They're just going to be uh, hit by the power of the message and then they're going to come to truth. And that's so rarely, if ever, um, the result. And so my meeting with Pastor Benson, he, he had an approach very similar to you and to your congregation. It was very centered in love, right? You know, I had been mistreated by a lot of people on my mission. And, and I tell you, we make so many mistakes as Christians in the way that we engage with non-believers, right? I mean, when I knocked on somebody's door and somebody told me that I was going to hell and I was in a cult and they just kicked me out of their lives, that, that didn't do anything to draw me into a relationship with Christ, right? So, so we're called to share the truth in love. Uh, we're called to defend our faith, right? To, to have a ready defense for the hope that lies in us, but with gentleness and respect, right? And so that's kind of how Pastor Benson approached us. He had this very loving, this very kind, this very respectful, this very compassionate approach, but he also had a very truth-centered approach. You know, he didn't omit the things that he he knew were going to ultimately offend me. And so as I sat there and we're having this dialogue, he shares the gospel with me in a way that I had never really heard my entire life. And as a Latter-day Saint, um, the gospel that I knew in the Mormon church was contradictory to, you know, what I now know and understand as the biblical gospel. So when he was sharing with me, you know, that salvation was a free gift to be received by faith, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified by his grace as a gift right, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, I'm thinking about this going, well, this doesn't make any sense. It's too easy. It's too simple. You know, it's removing myself from the equation of my own salvation. And that just, uh, I didn't like that, right? Because I had this pride in believing that I was establishing righteousness before God through my own works. And so I was being challenged by that. And as he's sharing the gospel, I, I'm just kind of I'm almost laughing because I saw the doctrine of grace as folly at that time of my life. And, uh, and to me, it just seemed too simple, right? It seemed like the easy way out. And I'm sure you've heard this as you've maybe talked to Latter-day Saint missionaries or other non-believers is they kind of, um, they almost mock the idea of the gospel because it's so simple, right? This good news that Jesus paid in full the penalty for our sins on the cross and that there's nothing we can do to earn that or be worthy of it. And yet God is offering it to us freely to be received by faith. And that's it, right? That's the end of the story. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and that we are justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And so I was convicted by that, and, and it really frustrated me, and it really angered me. And this kind of goes back to what you were talking about before, that sometimes and many times our initial engagements with people, they're not fruitful in the moment, right? So I actually got angry at Pastor Benson. My response to the gospel was uh, I, I, I defended myself. I kind of condemned him. I told him that if he didn't join the church, then he was going to be condemned. And I just had this very bold response. And, and I think he could see visibly that I was frustrated, that I was angry. And uh, that probably disheartened him, you know, I'm sure, because nobody wants to share the gospel and to have that type of response because we feel like, well, the seeds are not falling on good ground. And to me, it's just evidence of this greater love of God, the sovereignty of God, that even when those seeds in the moment don't fall on good ground, that God can still, you know, work them and, and water them and ultimately bring them to growth. I've been called a gracer. Have you ever heard that terminology? Oh, yeah. 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 It's this derogatory term sometimes like, oh, you're just one of them gracers. 
And this is something that the LDS missionaries would say when I try to explain that grace is free. I really appreciate that you focus. A, it's it's just your heart. You're just a caring, compassionate person. And so you focus so much on it's not just the information, it's the way the information is delivered. I fall short of that all the time. Look, so I know so much. Uh, I have a huge library and half the books are Mormon-ish, right? Like they're either pro or con. And so when I walk in to talk with a young missionary, I feel like I'm carrying bazookas and I've got battleships behind me. And it's hard not to just drop all the ammo I have at once. And there has to be this, I care for you. Um, I know you're away from your family. I know you're really passionate about what you're doing and try to love the person and not just try to win an argument. And that's so difficult. Christians to our fault will wear like a badge of honor. Like, oh, I had a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness come to my door and I, I told them they were going to hell and slammed the door. And I'm like, that's terrible. God brought, literally brought somebody to you to say, hey, share the gospel with this person. And you slammed the door in their face. So as you began to hear this, uh, there's something I've heard you say many times is you were encouraged to read the New Testament like a child. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think Pastor Bench could see that my frustration was boiling over uh, by the end of our meeting. And, um, and, and he gave me a really kind of unique parting words. And he, he said, look, I'm not asking you to trust me and you don't have to trust me and you don't have to listen to anything that I have to say. He basically invited me and challenged me to go to the source. He said, go to the Bible, go to the New Testament and read it like a child, right? Through the eyes of a child. And I think what that invitation was really calling me to was to re remove my preconceived notions, to remove my presuppositions about what truth was based on what I had been taught my entire life through my religion and instead, you know, approach God's word just at face value, right? As a child who would come to their father and say, teach me. And so he gave me that invitation. And, and that was really the catalyst that, that set my, my um, conversion in motion. And there's this weird contrast in there of somebody saying, hey, don't trust me. Just read the Bible when you come from an environment. And as I read the book, there were several times where people would remind you of the authority that they had. Like, right, you know that there's a chain of command and I'm higher up than you. You need to listen to me. So was that an obvious contrast that you weren't used to? Somebody saying, hey, you don't have to take my word for it. When you grow up in an environment, it's where like you take my word for it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so much of my life was was putting my faith in man, right? And in this, um, you know, system of authority that that was this hierarchy that went all the way up to to the LDS prophet, and and I had to believe in that priesthood chain of authority, and I had to follow it. And so, what a unique challenge to say, go to the source, like. And what trust Pastor Benson had in the power of the Word of God. And I think that's so profound um, because so often I think that we omit the greatest tool that we have at our disposal in ministry, and that is Scripture, right? That is the Word of God. And so we we often, you know, we try to come in so prepared and have all this arsenal of knowledge and information, right? And, and we try to convince people based on, you know, an intellectual approach, and yet we forget to even point them to, you know, the Scriptures, right? The, the gospel itself, the message of the word of God. And I think that that's so profound that he had kind of this, this foresight to do that and to trust that if I went to the scriptures that through the Holy Spirit, God could make a change in my life that he could not. Did you have at any point because Mormons carry around a Bible with them? So the Bible was something that you've had and grew up with. 
why was it the challenge to read it like a child um, so impactful if you had been reading it to begin with already? Yeah, that's a good question because there are four books of scriptural canon in, in the LDS church. And so it's, there's the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and then two others. The problem is that the, the supreme authority in scriptural canon in the Mormon church is placed on the Book of Mormon. And so we were actually taught that the Bible had been mistranslated, that it was corrupted, and that it had many plain and precious truths missing from it. So it's not that I didn't read the Bible, but I didn't put my faith in it as the infallible word of God, right? I didn't approach it as, as a Christian approaches the Bible. And so I had never, like at that point in my life, I'd read the Book of Mormon probably five times all the way through, but I had never read even just the New Testament all the way through. And so I think that initially when I began this process of reading the Bible, it was because I had more of a desire to prove Pastor Benson wrong. I think it was it was genuinely because I was prideful and because I believed that the Mormon church could be solidified through the New Testament alone. I mean, that's how convinced I was that it was the true church. And even removing all the other scriptures, I figured I'll read the New Testament and it will prove everything that I have, you know, claimed the Mormon church to be to this pastor. And then I'll go back to him and show him that he's wrong about this doctrine, you know, of grace, right? So uh, he was, I would have kind of seen him as a gracer and just seen that as foolishness to me at that time of my life. And so it's just amazing that that's where my heart was when this process began. But, you know, over time, God, God changed my heart. Do Mormons misunderstand what we, what you and I think about grace? Because when they say the term grace, or they're thinking, oh, so you can do whatever you want. And you just go and ask forgiveness and God forgives you. Is that, is that a common misunderstanding? That is a very common misunderstanding. And I had that perception as a Latter-day Saint. And that's essentially that uh, this idea that we're saved by grace alone was a license to sin, right? And that's yeah. probably something that you've heard a lot. And I just thought, oh, well, that just means you just throw your hands in the air. You say, I'm saved, but then you can do whatever you want and you expect to be forgiven. That's what I thought this kind of you know, evangelical understanding of grace was. And of course, uh, that's kind of the main part of my testimony is coming to understand through the word of God, what grace really is, what that unmerited favor uh, revealed in Christ Jesus really is and how that ultimately changed my life. So um, you are still on your missionary trip and you decide that now, is it a sudden, oh my gosh, the church is not true. Or is it a gradual that where you finally get to the point at what point do you go, I'm not Mormon anymore. Yeah. So I actually read the New Testament in its entirety 12 times throughout the course of my LDS mission, which I had, I think from the time that I was originally challenged by Pastor Benson, I probably had about 18 or 20 months left. So that that's a lot. That's a lot of reading the, the New Testament. And um, the amazing thing is it took me, it, it was a very gradual process, right? It, it was a challenging process for me to begin to slowly open my eyes, right, to to spiritual truth that I had been blind to my entire life. Um, I love what Paul said to the Corinthians that, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So I, I had this genuine spiritual blindness that was keeping me from being able to see, right, the, the beauty and simplicity of the gospel message revealed in scripture. And so, but it wasn't like a single epiphany. It wasn't a single moment. It was like 12 times. I mean, it took a lot of God's word to pour over me, um, but it was like the slow process of being washed by the water of the word of God. And my eyes 
slowly started to see. So like every time I read through the New Testament, like different things would stick out at me, right? You know, Ephesians 2, all of a sudden had this power, like Titus chapter 3 had this power, you know, John chapter 6 or Romans 3 or 1 John 4. And so there, there were different passages at different walks of my journey that, that seemed to kind of implant themselves into my heart. But it did kind of ultimately lead to this culminating moment for me uh, that was the, the straw that broke the, the proverbial camel's back of my spiritual, you know, faithfulness to Mormonism. And that was uh, reading the book of Hebrews. And this is a kind of a, an important part of my book. It's an important part of my story uh, was I was reading, you know, the book of Hebrews and I got to chapter seven and it's talking about the Melchizedek priesthood. And if you know Mormon theology, you know that I actually, as a Mormon missionary, believe to hold the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, right? So I thought mm-hmm. I had this unique uh, and exclusive authority. And uh, and I read Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 10. And um, without going into too much detail, I, I, I realized in that moment that all of these elements that were central to right? God's law in the Old Testament that were central to, uh, you know, the old law revealed uh, through Sion on Sinai to, to Moses, that they were all pointing to something that would fulfill those elements, that the, salvi- the salvific power was never within the temple itself. It was never yeah. within the high priest itself or the prophet or the priesthood or all of these representative elements that they were all pointing towards something. And so, I read this in Hebrews that those were a type and a shadow of the reality. And of course the reality was Christ, right? So, so he was the element that would rep that was represented by all of these aspects of the old law and that he would fulfill those things. And that in him, man would find the only Avenue to reconciliation to God, right? So there was no amount of works-based righteousness that we could ever establish to have, you know, right standing with God that only through, that finished and completed and perfected work of Christ, could we be right with God? And at that point, I realized because in Mormonism, temples, I mean, were were essential for salvation, right? I believe my father, for example, was a high priest in the Mormon church, right? And and, and prophets and all of these elements to realize, no, Jesus, right, encompasses yeah. all of those things. And he alone is the only thing that we need to be right with God. And at that point, I kind of realized that the Mormon church and all of its foundation, right, this restoration that it had been fulfilled in Christ. And that was a terrifying epiphany for me because I had never even considered up to that point that the church, you know, at its very core was not true. Yeah. That's, that's really hard when your paradigm shifts that much because now that's going to make you make some big decisions. You're going to have to maybe have some different kind of relationships with friends and family members. What did a decision like this cost you socially uh, with your family, with your friends? Now, if, if you grew up in Utah, then, then everybody you knew would be Mormon, but you come from an environment where there's not a lot of Mormons. So were you really close with a, a tight knit group and did this affect your relationships when you got home? Yeah. So to clarify, although I did grow up in the Midwest, I actually moved to Utah when I was a freshman in high okay. school. Yeah. So we moved to a, a town that was 98% LDS. Uh, my mother was a tenured professor at BYU yeah. and uh, my family was, you know, right in the heart of this, this culture of Mormonism. And so at that point in my life, I mean, all of my friends, all of my relationships, uh, even my own scholarship and education to, to, you know, BYU, 
uh, previous to my mission, my my career path, everything that I knew, everything that I loved, every aspect of my identity was enmeshed in in my religious identity as as a young Latter Day Saint, and so. I knew that all of that would be at stake. And, and like you talked about before, when you don't grow up in the, you know, the Christian church and whether you do, right, we are called to die to ourselves, right? At some point we have to be born again. It doesn't matter where we were born the first time or yeah. to what we were born. Every individual has to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so I knew that the old life that had defined me, um, that was, all that I knew and loved would have to be laid on the altar. It would have to be crucified with Christ. And uh, what's funny and, and, and amazing looking back is when you go on a mission, right, before you leave, you pick like a theme verse for your two-year mission trip and they put it on this plaque and they hang it up at your local chapel. Well, I picked Galatians 2.20. I don't know why. Uh, I, I don't know that I fully understood its meaning, uh, but it says, you know, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it, it's it's amazing that like there is almost this spiritual premonition, even in choosing that verse, that that was the reality that I was going to have to live out was to go through that process of being crucified with Christ and losing my old life. And and it did. It came with the repercussions of, you know, losing my, my certainly my cultural reputation. Uh, most of my friends that I knew and loved, um, many of them, I mean, even 15 years later, uh, have not spoken to me since. Yeah. Um, you know, it cost relationships even within my, my family for a time. Um, and, and so it, it was a massive uh, cultural uh, repercussions that, that I was facing as a result of my faith in Christ. Now, according to Mormon doctrine, somebody who was a part of the church and leaves, you're one of the few people, because they don't think very many people go to outer darkness as they might describe hell. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but those who know the truth of the church, but then leave, they're the ones that go to outer darkness. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I think they would where that line is cut off, right? I mean, how much yeah. knowledge do you have to have? How high up do you have to be in the church to qualify for that? I think that that marker moves depending on who who you're talking to. But yeah, I mean, I had gone to the temple. I had been a full-time temple worker. I mean, I had received, right, the fullness of everything that the LDS church had to offer and then ultimately, you know, rejected it. And so I, I think in their eyes, it, it would have qualified me for, you know, eternal damnation. I, I've been told a number of times because I, I've, fight the church. I fight God's true church that I am doomed to outer darkness. Um, but so, wow, there's, there's a lot. And I'm trying to think there's, there's certain aspects where Christians and Mormons use the same language. We might say Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit. Where do you see the biggest areas of tension? What was like kind of like the last thing Hey, let me ask two questions. Where is the most tension that you see when it comes to the differences between faith? And what was the last thing that had to die from your old Mormon life in order to be in line with God's word? So I'd say the two biggest things, if you just want to boil everything down and someone says, what, what, are, what is the, the difference between LDS theology and, and you know, a biblical theology? The two things I would say is the nature of God. Um, and the nature of Christ, and also the method or the way to reconciliation to God. 
So in Mormon theology, like God is not from everlasting to everlasting. The, the mm-hmm. father actually was a man who lived on a planet who earned his godhood and was exalted to that God, that, that deity because of his faithfulness to the, the ordinances and commandments of this eternal law of Mormonism. And so within that, so then even the nature of Christ, like Jesus is not eternal. He actually is a created being in Mormon theology. He was the first spirit born child of God in the pre-earth life. And so there's obviously massive um, ramifications when we don't when we don't define God properly according to the nature that's been revealed in his word. And then the second thing is the method of salvation. How are we reconciled to God? You know, is it by grace through faith or is it by grace through faith and our works? And there is a massive difference. There is an eternal difference between those two viewpoints, whether or not we believe that that we can add something to the finished work of Christ. And so not only... Um, was Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection necessary for reconciliation to God in the LDS church, but also we then had to do our part. We had to be water baptized by the proper authority, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the proper authority. We had to become a member of the church. We then had to live faithful within our activities and our callings of the church. We had to pay tithing. We had to follow the prophet. We had to live moral codes. We ultimately had to go to the temple, perform necessary ordinances, and then get married, and then ultimately live and endure to the end through faithfulness for the rest of our lives. And only then would we have qualified ourselves for eternal life in the presence of God. And of course, we know that that is a gospel of works-based righteousness, which is in complete contradiction to the saving good news revealed in the scriptures. Now, there's definitely been a shift in Mormonism over uh, the centuries, because originally Mormonism was like, uh, we're the only true Christians. They're not Christians at all. Um, and everybody else are sons of the devil. My church is the whore of Babylon and all those things, right? Joseph Smith started by yeah. saying all their creeds are corrupt and all their professors are, you know, evil. Like, like everything is wrong with it. There's nothing good there. And now Mormonism is kind of like, we're Christian just like you. Mm. And there's, kind of wanting this need or desire to piggyback on the popularity of Christianity to say, no, we're just, we're just Christians with a little bit more light. Did you see that shift? And is that when you were growing up in it, was it like, we're the only true Christians or these poor guys, they just need a little bit more light? Yeah. So I'll speak to that when I was a missionary. Um, I, I would say that we basically had the mentality of what we would tell people is, we have the fullness of the truth. Like you have some of the truth or part of the truth, but we have the fullness of the truth. So we want to add to what you believe, right? We want to make complete what you believe. Um, So we always found it ironic that people would say that we weren't Christian because we thought, well, we were, we're actually the truest Christians and not that we wouldn't say that other people weren't following Jesus, but just that they didn't have the fullness, right? So you have the Bible, which is part of it, but man, we've got so much more to add to that. We've got something better to add to that was kind of our approach. I think that over the last 15 years, even since I've been a missionary, that the church has kind of had a, had a paradigm shift um, in their approach to that. I think they've made a much more concerted effort to try to uh, mesh themselves with evangelical Christianity, right? To appear as though they are, you know, part of the body of Christ to, to kind of remove some of the, the otter doctrines, um, you know, from, from the forefront of Mormonism and, and really try to emphasize on things that, that they think that evangelical Christians will be more familiar with. 
Um, so it, it does make ministry a little bit more challenging because there is a line being blurred there. I mean, even for example, uh, the TV series, The Chosen, right? That That is actually being executively produced by the Mormon church. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, th- there's a there's a tie there between Dallas Jenkins and the, and the Latter-day Saints um, that, that goes very deep. And, and he's gone on several podcasts and interviews saying that, that Mormons and Christians believe in the same Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, so the production facilities for The Chosen are in the state of Utah. They're using the Mormon Church's production facilities. They are distributing it through uh, the the Mormon Church's uh, channel, VidAngel, and other things. And so um, I, it's things like that, that that they work so hard to do yeah. in order to blur those lines so that the world is perceiving them as mainstream Christian. There's there's definitely that desire, and I see that very strongly. Because they, they would say, oh, we don't believe that you're saved by works. Yeah, they they would just say we're just, you know, if you're a Christian, aren't you going to be obedient? Aren't you just going to want to do the things that God tells you to do? That's all we're doing. And so there is this where they used to be much more. Yes, we are work based. That because even the Book of Mormon, Moroni ten thirty two, um, that you have to. Maybe you can quote it. I can't yeah, deny uh, yourselves of all ungodliness. Yeah, yeah. and then and will de- grace be sufficient for you? Yeah. So I have to deny myself of all ungodliness, which means stop sinning and love God perfectly, then is his grace sufficient for me. So I always ask, if I say mow my yard, then you get 20 bucks. When do you get 20 bucks? Well, after you mow the yard. So you don't get God's grace. According to the Book of Mormon, You, I don't get God's grace until I stop sinning and love God perfectly. Well, the way a Christian, you and I would see it is, we're only able to love God because we have received his grace. And we are a new creation, and a new creation lives a new way. Yeah, uh, yeah there's so many of these little misunderstandings, and I, I had no idea about The Chosen. I People keep telling me I need to watch it, and I, I've been planning on watching it, but now I'm going to watch it with a little bit keener eye. Do you think it's being successful in its attempt to blur those lines a little bit? I think that I, I think that when, when evangelicals don't make a distinct line right between the doctrines and gospel that is presented within Mormonism and Christianity. I think that's problematic because um, it's creating an uncertainty, right? One of the challenges that our ministry faces a lot as we go uh, to churches all over North America is people are unaware that Mormons even need to be witnessed to, that that they even adhere to doctrines that are not part of the Orthodox Christian faith. And so I think that partnerships like that only work to, uh, you know, advance that confusion with with people because if if the mormon church can give the appearance that they are christian like everybody else then number one the christian body isn't seeking to share the gospel with them right i mean that's what that's what the enemy wants the enemy does not want people to hear the word of god the enemy does not want people to hear the gospel and so all of a sudden there's an entire people group that we're removing from the great commission because we think that they already have truth not realizing that no these are people who are they're very sincere. They're very zealous. They're they're very incredible people, but they're ignorant, right? I mean, Paul said that about the Jews, right? He said, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge yeah. or being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They didn't submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so that's kind of how I see Mormons, right? The, this amazing yeah. group of people that's zealous for God, but that zeal is an ignorance. But, you know, we're not saved in ignorance. You know, we're saved in truth. 
and, and we're saved through the gospel message, which is the power of God into salvation. And so Mormons need the gospel and they need truth and they need the word of God. And the Christian body needs to be aware of that. And we need to be lovingly proclaiming that to them. I think this, uh, you're so absolutely right about the blurring of the lines and the Mormon church has an incredible PR team. Yeah. I mean, the way it presents itself and sometimes it's so far removed from reality. Even if you go to Salt Lake City and you're doing the little tour, all the pictures of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, you know, he's sitting there copying it, you know, word for word and and not what we know to be with the head in the hat. Like it's tried to remove the strangeness. Yeah. And I remember when they they made removals of certain temple rituals where there used to be the slitting of the throat. They took that out. Anything that was weird or too graphic, they don't talk about. Brigham Young had the Adam God theory that Adam was actually God or that he physically had physical relationships with Mary in order to produce Jesus. All these kind of weird things that were what made Mormonism Mormonism have disappeared. Now, I I hope is that they continue to desire to be Christian so much that as they change, they totally let go of those things and maybe eventually just let go of the Book of Mormon in general. I don't know. It's hard to imagine. Well, I say it's, I was talking to a Mormon friend. Let me say it this way. I explained a story about a guy who was a flat earther. And when he died, God granted him an audience one-on-one and be able to ask any question he wanted. So he goes before God. And he says, God, is the world really flat? God says, my son, I'm afraid it's not. It's actually round. The guy thinks for a second. He goes, aha, this conspiracy theory goes even higher than God. And so even presented with total evidence that this is not true, there still is something, this blindness, the spiritual blindness that scripture talks about that just keeps them from seeing the truth. So you can bring all the evidence the Book of Mormon supposedly took place. No one knows exactly where it took place, but these giant battles where there's no evidence of battles. Uh, have you ever heard of the Strangeites? Do you know what those are? Uh-uh. So the Strangeites are another branch of LDS, and he claimed, uh, he even has handwritten paperwork that says he was supposed to take the place of Joseph Smith. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Strangeites, yeah. yeah. And I just learned about him like a week ago. So I was really fascinated because he wrote another book and he had plates and all but one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon also testified or on the front listed as witnesses to this other book. And every person in Joseph Smith's family, except for one, followed after him. And I asked my Mormon friend, well, why don't you believe this? If you believe the testimony in the Book of Mormon, here's the same testimony. If you believe these early Mormons following Joseph as a prophet, they followed him as a prophet. And it, you might as well, like it just, it just goes over the head because it doesn't, evidence doesn't matter. Is there a part of the Mormon church that dislikes evidence and relies more on personal testimony? Absolutely. I mean, that the, the problem is, is people are putting their, their faith in man and they're putting their faith in feelings, right? So the way that we were taught to confirm truth uh, as a Mormon was that we would have a, a burning in the bosom, they called it. So it's essentially you would pray about it. You would ask God for it whether or not it's true. And then the Holy Spirit would give this confirmation through feelings, right? And so that was how we tested 
truth, which of course is the opposite of what we're called to do biblically. I mean, First John four, uh, that many, you know, that that um, we have to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and John continues on how we can test those spirits. And so, unfortunately, we were putting our, our faith and our hope in our feelings and in our heart. And so, our, our heart was testifying to us, right? But we know that the heart is deceitful above all things. We know that out of the heart comes false witness. And so, that's the that's the difference, right, of what I was learning as a Mormon missionary was I was putting my faith in what the Word of God said. And I was starting to test the things that I had been taught by, by man and by religious leaders against what the Word of God said. And I was beginning to see contradictions. I was beginning to see that the word of God was word of God was not in line uh, with what my my LDS leadership was teaching me, and and that caused me to you know investigate more of what the word of God had to say. And that's part of my encouragement too for people you know whether especially you know Mormons is we can't put our trust in man and we can't put our trust in feelings. We need to put our trust in the God breathed word that has been revealed to us and preserved for us, and then we test all things against the written word of God, and we can then know you know those things which are true and those things which which have been um, you know, fabricated by the enemy. I, I reached out to one of my Mormon friends who I've known, I'm guessing probably close to 10 years now, love him to death. And I said, Hey, I'm going to have a former Mormon on the podcast. I says, is there a question you would like to ask him? So would you mind if I ask you a question from, he says, uh, you can tell him that this question comes from a faithful Latter-day Saint. So that's, that's how he wanted me to begin. He said, I would ask him about the most spiritual experience he had that he knew that the church was true. So did you have a spiritual experience when you were a Mormon that made you think that the church was true? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I actually had several. I mean, I, I was a, a young man who had sought truth by the way that I was taught to seek truth. I had prayed. Uh, I had read the Book of Mormon. I watched the the, the prophet, the apostles. I prayed to God about them. And I received what I believe was a spiritual confirmation of burning in the bosom. I remember watching uh, the Mormon prophet at general conference and just being flooded in tears uh, because I, I knew that God was confirming to me that this man was, was called of God. I went to the temple inside the temple. I had numerous spiritual experiences. I had uh, witnesses that I believed, you know, were, were testifying truth to me. But that's what's so amazing is, is I can look back now and I can discount these experiences of being from God because I can see where they led, right? They ultimately led me right. to a testimony of Mormonism or a testimony of man or the Book of Mormon. And yet the spiritual experiences I had as a missionary led me to the Word of God. They led right. me to Christ. They led me to the saving gospel. And so now I'm, I'm testing those things because it, it is easy to be deceived and, and, and it is easy to fall into that deceptive spirit. And so I'm not denying that I had spiritual experiences as a Latter-day Saint, and I'm not denying that I believed and had a testimony of the church that I thought was unshakable. But what I now know is that I am putting my faith in the Word of God, and I'm testing those things against the Word of God. And now I know through Scripture and through the Bible and through the Old and the New Testament, I know what is truth and what is not, and I can now test all of the things that were taught by Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and my, my LDS leaders. And I can say they do not conform to the same gospel that was revealed once and for all to the saints by the apostles in the New Testament. And therefore, I, I reject them. So it's almost that there's this assumption that just because somebody has a supernatural experience, even if it's a pleasant supernatural experience, because I don't know how a false religion could start on negative 
supernatural yeah. experiences, right? They would have to be positive. So do you view these positive supernatural experiences as demonic? Is that going too far? Or how do you view them now? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I think when it comes down to it, it have to be, right? Because because there's either the spirit of God or there's the, the, the deceptive spirit of Satan, right? Whose purpose is to draw us away from truth. And so these spiritual experiences, I believe they were deceptive spirits. I believe that they were drawing me to something because I was making myself susceptible to them because I was seeking them, right? Yeah. So for example, like the temple, we, we, we believed and were taught that it's the house of God and it contains the presence of God. And within the four walls of the temple, that is where God exists and we can be with him. And so naturally I'm, I'm going to the temple wanting to experience that. I'm opening myself up to these dis deceptive spirits to come in and, and testify to me because my heart is, is ready for them and, and willing to receive them rather than testify testing the things against the word of God. And, and listen, I, I don't discount the, the good experiences people had. I mean, people have had even experiences that are hard to explain away, but if those experiences don't lead us to the truth, if they don't lead us ultimately to Jesus Christ and, and his death, burial, and resurrection and to his word, then I can discount those. And so that's why now as a Christian, I'm not putting my emphasis into having spiritual experiences, right? I'm not, I'm not, my relationship with God isn't dependent on feelings in my heart. My relationship with God is through his word. And that's how I know him through the person of Christ that was, that is then revealed in the word, right? And so the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so now I know God because I know Christ, because I know his word. I think this is why scripture even warns that Satan can come as an angel of light. Yeah. If I want to draw my dog away, I offer a bag of treats, not a bag of feces, right? Like <laughs> it has to be attractive in order to draw you away. And the angel of light, isn't that what Moroni was, right? Yeah. He was an angel of light and they have a big statue of Moroni. And I was like, does no one see <laughs> that an angel of light is what told might be Satan, right? Like they, he could appear as an angel of light. You literally have, oh, he's an angel of light. I'm like, does, does that not, does that not make, raise like a red flag? Yeah, uh, I mean, Paul, Paul gave that warning right, right to the, the Galatians in chapter one. He says, if anyone comes to you bringing another gospel other than the one that we brought you, yeah. let him be accursed, right? Anathema, like it's very strong language. Yeah. So anyone, even, even if an angel of heaven comes to you and they're preaching a gospel that's different than the one that Paul originally delivered, that Christ delivered, that the apostles delivered, then we can discount that. And that's very powerful, right? Because if you have an angelic experience or a visitation from heaven, right, you're going to put stock into the power of that spiritual experience. But he says, if the message delivered, if the ultimate, you know, thing that that points you to is not in line with that, which has been revealed by the word of God, then we know that that is not from God. And I think, wow, that is such a powerful thing because the, these Galatians had been deceived by people who were coming in, proclaiming another gospel. These Judaizers who were saying, well, in addition to believing in Jesus, you also must adhere to the tenets of the old law in order to be saved. And Paul's like, no, there is only one gospel. It's only been delivered once. And if anyone or any angel or, 
or visitor comes to you proclaiming something that contradicts that one simple message, then you must reject it. And so here we have an angel, right, Moroni, that comes bringing another gospel. Yeah. And, and that is the symbol that sits on top of their temples. And, and it's, you know, it's sad. It breaks my heart because there is a, a, an angel of light proclaiming a false gospel, calling people to itself in order to be deceived by a gospel that cannot save. And that is why I, I, I have such a heart for the, the LDS people, because I want them to be freed from that spiritual bondage and be, be given freedom that can only be found in Jesus. Wow. That's awesome. I'm going to lower my, uh, I've been standing here. I'm going to lower myself down. Um, so I took a, a, a group of young missionaries, um, to Salt Lake City one year. And this young lady, she had never been on a mission trip before. She had grown up Catholic, became a Christian. And we walked onto the temple grounds and she just needed to go to use a restroom. So she goes to the gift shop, use a restroom, comes back and she's pale. Hmm. And she says, what is that? I said, what do you mean? And she, she was not charismatic. She had never used this kind of language before. She says, I don't know how to describe it. She says, it's, it's really cold or dark. She's like, something's not right here. And she had never experienced spiritual darkness before, but as somebody who has been to that environment, to been to that area, uh, there is, for those of us who are Christians, a real spiritual darkness, a blindness over the people that is there. That's why I really hope to be able to get your book into the hands of as many devout Mormons or Mormon missionaries as possible, because I think stories like this are necessary, that people can see that, hey, it actually gets better on the other side, that the relationship with God is not dependent upon other people. But I was telling a friend of mine, I said, the guys in your part of a band called Adam's Road, correct? Mm -hmm. And you guys travel around and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone that'll have you, that you guys come and perform. Uh, we brought you to Tulsa once and you guys do an incredible job. I said, but there's something about the way that you guys live it's, it's one of the, like, I want to be complimentary without, uh, you're the type of Christians that I hope we all can become. The level of faithfulness and love and kindness and the way you guys share all things together, because you basically live with the bandmates, correct? You guys still do that. Yeah. And like, no one has a car. There's a car that you all share and you have all things in common because you just take the Bible seriously. And I have so much respect for you guys. And I'm so thankful for the ministry that you guys had give. I hope a lot of people through your book and it's becoming a movie as well, right? Yes. That, how crazy is that? You know, they didn't, they didn't call me to see who I should play, but you know, <laughs> but uh, that's gotta be weird, right? To, to have a, a movie made about you. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it is weird. I, I think when we get to the part where there's actually like an actor that's going to play you, I, I think that'll be strange uh, going through that process. But, you know, when I wrote this book and even the same thing with the movie, like it's not about me. And I, and I, I hope that Kayla, when you read it, you walk away not going, hey, Mike is a great guy, but we have a great God. And, and that was, I never wanted to be I wanted to be out of the way of my own story, if that makes sense, awesome. so that I could just objectively say, this is how good God is. This is the grace of God. This is the power of the gospel message. And so, you know, my prayer with this book is that people will 
come away with a with a, a greater love for Christ, and if they don't know Christ, to want to know Christ because of what He did in my life, because He He found somebody that didn't deserve His love, and yet He loved me anyway. I mean, isn't that all of our testimonies? I know that's yours, you know. And and whatever background we have, whether it's the extreme religious or the extreme world. Um, that God still loves us and he pursues us and he, and he finds us and, and, he, and he works through so many situations and people to, to bring us to the precipice of his grace and, and to wrap us in his amazing uh, loving arms. And um, so same thing with the movie, like it's not about me, it's, it's about God using the story that he told in my life to bring other people to, to his great love. Man, amen to all of that. And what a, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, how is your ministry to the Mormons today? What does that look like? How receptive are there and how much fruit do you see from this? Yeah. So our, our ministry is kind of twofold. Um, a lot of people say, well, or, or, or they assume because we are former Mormons that we have an, a ministry that's exclusively to the Mormon people. I would say that actually the larger part of our ministry is actually to the body of Christ. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, that we want to equip and we want to encourage the saints to fulfill the ministry that we've been called to do, right? The Great Commission. And so using our music and using our testimonies, we're able to encourage Christians to be witnesses of the gospel, not just to Mormons, but to Jehovah's Witnesses, to atheists, to Muslims, to you know anybody and everybody who doesn't know the saving gospel of Christ. Um, but within that, you know, naturally, because our story has become pretty far and wide amongst, you know, Latter-day Saints, uh, we have a lot of people that reach out to us, a lot of people that are transitioning, that they're questioning, um, and they want to know more about how they can come to know the love of God in the way that we did. And so we've just had thousands of experiences uh, ministering one-on-one with, with Latter-day Saints um, through you know, phone, through emails, through Facebook, through social media, wow. and through, you know, and even on the road, on person, uh, in person. And it's just been amazing um, how God has, has, has used what he did in our lives to then be a beacon of, of hope for Christ. There's also some character assassination. When I uh, talked to Mormons and your mother was a professor, she was on staff at BYU uh, she wrote the book Unveiling Grace, and I'll ask if they heard of Adam's Road, and they're like, Psh, oh, yeah, you know, that there is this, uh, because if what you say is true, then everything they believe is false. So, there, of course, there's this very uh, negative. So, I'm glad to hear that there are a lot of Mormons that still reach out, especially if they're transitioning, trying to figure it out. Unfortunately, a lot of people leave Mormonism and go to atheism. Yeah. They just go to some kind of if you've been lied to for that long, it's hard to believe anybody. Yeah. That's what really, really breaks my heart. Sometimes I might come across too strongly to my Mormon friends, but because I know, like, look, there's so many of you that are going to find out the truth someday that you're going to realize what kind of person Joseph Smith was and how there's just no way to back up any of these claims. And especially here's what the Bible truly says about God, and you can actually know him. I remember talking with some uh, female Mormon missionaries, which there's a lot more of nowadays. And I just asked them to count how many men stand between them and God. Mm. And there was the guy who had to sign off on their priesthood uh, card and so they could get into the temple and then they had to get married. Right. And so they had to have uh, a man propose to them and get married in a temple. And then they had to have the prophet that they agreed. And so there's, there's three guys already. And there's even more, if we went down and got more specific, there's more people 
who stand between you and God. Instead, all you need is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that stands between us. Why, why are you allowing other men who are fallen and faulty to dictate whether or not you can have a relationship with God? No, that, that's such a powerful thing to address. Um, and I've never really even thought of doing it that way. That's actually a great uh, ministry uh, tool. Um, I, I remember as a missionary, one of the most profound verses that I read was 1 Timothy 2.5, uh, where Paul tells Timothy that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do with that. And I realized like I can have direct access to God independent of my religious authority, right? I, I can have yeah. access to God directly through Jesus Christ alone. I didn't have to go through this, you know, priesthood chain of authority. Um, but you know, just as when the veil was torn from top to bottom at the at the crucifixion of Christ, it represented this the, this new way, right? The, this this new covenant that mankind had with God, this covenant of grace through the blood of Christ, that we could then approach the throne of God's grace because of Jesus Christ, and no longer have that which once separated us. And and that was very profound. So I think addressing uh, all, all the mediators because. Right. They would have had a mission president. They would have had a bishop. They would have had a stake president, you know, and, and up on the line and, and possibly a dozen people, you know, that had spiritual uh, stewardship and authority over them before they even got to God. It's pretty powerful in the Me Too movement era um, to show that there's a bunch of dudes telling you what to do who don't know what to do. Yeah. And maybe all you need is Jesus Christ. What I hope the Christians, because we have Christians, atheists, uh, and Mormons who listen to this podcast. And so what I hope the Christians hear is to remember how good grace is. Because I know there's many times where you tell your testimony and you can't help but get choked up and be teary-eyed because you know what it's like to be enslaved under a law of works. You know how heavy that burden can be that I have to earn my right before God. And my Muslim friends feel that same weight. And I hope if you're a Christian, you hear how free he is actually understanding how good God's grace is. If I have Mormon listeners who are still listening at this point, what is something that you would like to communicate to them? I would simply give you the same challenge that I was given when I was at the, the peak of my faithfulness to the LDS church. And that's uh, go to the word of God, go to the source, go to the Bible uh, in, in particular, the new Testament and uh, and read it through the eyes of a child, and 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 try to remove those religious lenses, um, and and approach God's word with humility and and with a desire to be taught, and and come to see that everything in the Scripture points to Jesus. That Jesus is enough, right? That's the theme of our ministry, that 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 He is all sufficient to provide us everything that we will ever need, and His finished work on the cross is all sufficient to pay the penalty that we owed in order to have the righteous standing that, that so many Latter-day Saints are working to receive. Micah, I really appreciate your time. It's been great talking with you. The book will be available uh, June 5th, I believe. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, I'm sure. It's called Passport to Heaven by Micah Wilder. Uh, if you want to know more about Micah, you can always go to the Adams Road page. It's adamsroad.com or .org. Uh, adamsroadministry.com adamsroadministry.com in fact even if you go through the history of our podcast on dog backwards you'll 
run into one of the other members of Adams Road. Lila LeBaron was on the podcast uh, probably last year or so, and she escaped Mormon polygamy. And so she's got a fascinating story. But they travel around throughout the year and they sing and even give out all of their music for free because they just want to be faithful in proclaiming God. Uh, best wishes on the book. I, I hope uh, it gets into the hands of a lot of people. It's been great catching up with you. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. Um, we need to have you back in town and uh, just be great to, to spend time with you and the rest of the crew. Thank you, Caleb. I appreciate it. Love you, brother. Appreciate you, man. And we'll continue to pray for you and may God continue to bless your ministry.